dance if we want to We can leave your plans behind you could go where you want to, and you found your way here to the Safe Titles Podcast. I'm Dr. Grace Ambrose-Ockin, your host. This year's Safe Titles Podcast is sharing the over 100 interviews of employed adults who are blind or mobility visually impaired that I conducted between the years 1999 and 2001. And we're counting forwards from the oldest to the youngest. This week we have Dr. Josephine Davini, or as I knew her, Joe. She was a work colleague of mine, which would explain why she was one of the first people who I interviewed for this project. She was born in 1939 with low vision. She stated she became blind after an operation to fix her retina failed. She was gifted in mathematics and was quite capable all around. Let's listen to the interview with Joe Defeat. What's your date of birth? My date of birth is 39, March. Okay, March 39. Where were you born? New York City. Okay. In the Bronx. In the Bronx? Yeah. Where do you live now? Manhattan. What do you do for a living? I am the clinical director of social work uh, for the White House. Lighthouse International. Uh, where did you go to college? Well, I did my undergraduate work at Adelphi University in Long Island, and I did all of my graduate work at uh, New York University. That's my master's in social work and then a PhD in clinical social work. How long have you had a vision impairment? Um, about 50 years. Well, I started out with poor vision as, a, as an infant, but it really wasn't detected for a while, and then I had usable vision until I was about 10 and a half or 11, and then lost it following surgery. What's the name of the vision impairment? I have detached retinas. When did you first learn um, then traveling independent of another person? Not until I was really out of high school, because back in the 50s and 60s, they really didn't teach um, at teenagers mobility, independent mobility, until they were finished uh, with, let's say, high school, because most of the most of the public schools, I went to a public school, uh, had bus transportation. I moved around independently without a device in my house, right around my neighborhood, you know, my street I lived on, but mostly I used sighted guide. Sighted guide and... Um when I was about my last, my third year of high school, the end of my third year of high school during the summer, as a matter of fact, I came to the lighthouse for some evaluation because I was a student that was uh, headed for college. And so they did some evaluation. And I had a little bit of mobility cane use, but nothing significant. I guess they were checking out to see what my capabilities were. But at the same time, my parents and friends had been talking about a guide dog, and so I was kind of set on getting a guide dog, which is what I did as soon as I graduated high school. Ah. So how did you learn to travel independent of other people? I mean, you used the little cane use. Was that with a mobility instructor? Or was that well, I had very minimal in instruction with a mobility instructor, mostly, as I said, to test my dexterity, to see what capability, my sense of orientation. I guess I had a good sense of orientation. I mean, I knew and understood neighborhoods and blocks and lefts and rights and that kind of thing. And even when I traveled with sighted guides, I kind of knew where I was going. I knew if I were going from my house at that time 
to the subway station that I had to walk X number of blocks and there was a pattern to my, you know, to the blocks that I walked. I knew when to turn left, I knew when to go straight ahead. So I think my sense of orientation was good. Uh, so when I got my guide dog, I just, I was good. Yeah. I just was good. You know, it was part of my, uh, and maybe, maybe because I could see for, you know, the first 10 years of my life, even though my vision was uh, what they would call today low vision, mm -hmm. uh, I think having had that vision probably helped me with a sense of orientation. So you knew about um, the first 10 years, you must have known how addresses worked, how the I, concepts like that? I understood streets, I understood crossings, and I understood traffic patterns. Uh, I understood different neighborhoods. I ran lots of errands for my mother, going to stores and, and things like that. The grocery store, the supermarket, the laundry, the movie theaters. I mean, I also was the oldest of four children. So I really also helped out a lot with my uh, sister and brothers. Um, what attitudes did you encounter about traveling independently? It sounds like people encouraged it. It was just part of normal, everyday life. Uh, well, they did and they didn't. My family was protective in that they didn't like the idea of the cane, and that's probably what was my greatest influence in terms of the guide dog. Mm. Even my neighbors, I think they, they had the stigma of a person with a cane, and um, they were much more receptive to a guide dog. And I think I picked up that stigma at the time, you know, the old stigma of the blind man with the cane. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that a dog was, was more positive. And I think that that's probably, today I think it might have been very different. Uh, it's wonderful to have a dog, but at the same time, I think I probably would have tried my hand more at a cane. Uh, but I can't say, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute to your ability to travel at your current level of independence? Is it practice? Practice. <laughs> and hard work. And just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what the question, you know, what, uh, how I could answer that best. Um, there's a determination to be able to do things on my own. Mm -hmm. While my family was protective, they were also not discouraging. Good, yeah. And they did give me, um, they gave me some leeway, you know? They gave me some leeway and I did a lot of traveling and I think they were very proud of that. They were proud of the fact that I had initiative and I think, again, I have to say this as the oldest of four children, and having had a certain um, a certain family position, you know, a, a yes. status of the oldest, and also being looked up to, like my brothers and my sisters who were all younger when I when I lost my vision, as I said, I was only ten and a half. You know, they they understood, but they didn't understand. As they, oh, you can't see, yes, yeah, okay, but can you still tie my shoe? <laughs> you know, or you can't see, yeah. but here, look at this for me, or help me with this. So. And I think the fact that I had some vision, and not all of it, I also instituted my own adaptive techniques in terms of what I did around the house. For example? I used a lot more touch. I mean, I remembered helping my brothers and my little, my little brothers dressing. I couldn't see certain things, but I, I would feel their shoes. I would, you know, do help button their, button their shirts or their whatever, and a lot of it was tactile. It was just sort of adaptive. Yeah. You know. What are your childhood memories of traveling, riding bikes, public transit, family trips? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I never rode a bike because even early on, they detected certain certain retinal 
concerns. Mm. And so in those days, anybody who had a retinal problem was restricted from physical activity. So I was always excused from gym. I wasn't allowed to ride a bike. I wasn't allowed to skate. Although when my family wasn't home, I would put on skates and try to skate up and down the hallway in my apartment house. <laughs> great. Which, which I did, and I would hold on to the walls and stuff like that. But I, you know, but they, there was a concern. So I was never very athletic, and it was always discouraged rather than encouraged. Family trips, I mean, we did a lot of that. I mean, my father drove, of course, and uh, you know, we'd go, he would take us places. I grew up in the Bronx. We'd go to Sydney Island on Sundays. We'd go downtown to shows on the, week, you know, on the weekends. Um, things like that, you know, family picnics. You know, in the summertime especially, there were lots of picnics. Uh, and outings, family outings. We also have, my mother and father had, you know, quite an extended family, uncles, aunts, cousins, and they were all very close. So holidays were always, you know, a fiasco. I mean, <laughs> always tons of people, cousins, and relatives around. So there was always a lot of activity. Would they talk to you about what you were driving past, or um, um, especially after the age of 10? people trying to clue you in about other things that were out there? You know, there. I honestly don't remember. Uh -huh. Maybe there was just general conversation or maybe I asked questions. Um, I kind of always had, a, I kind of had a sense, I always knew where we were going. Uh -huh. But I don't remember how that actually, in truth, I don't remember how that was initiated. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think more about it, see what I could remember. Uh -huh. So what were you doing in the back seat of that car? Were you playing with your brothers and sisters, keeping an eye on them, making sure they didn't throw each other out the door? <laughs> All of the Paying above. attention? All of the above. Uh -huh. you know, it was kind of like, uh, they, they were pretty good when we were driving. And I, mean, I don't think we went on very extended trips. You know, we would go to, they were, the distances weren't that far because it was always a routine where we'd go to my grandmother's, my father's mother, my paternal grandmother on Sunday for Sunday dinner. Always, that was always something we did. And that was just a 10 minute ride, you know. Um, other trips, well, maybe we could have been in the car an hour. There was mostly bickering between my brothers. <laughs> my brothers were always, you know, were always at it. And there was probably a lot of yelling about sit still and stop kicking me and, and you know. Yeah, sometimes I would tell them stories. I would make up stories. They liked when I made up stories. Because I couldn't really read from too many books. Right. So I would make up stories. Things like that. Who was your favorite teacher and why? Ugh. I have to name names or can I just... You could just... <laughs> I'm trying to remember what his actual name was. He was a math teacher when I was in about the seventh grade. Uh, seventh grade. And um, he became my idol. There were two, actually, but he was my first. Mm -hmm. Became my idol because I think he was the first one to, and I was totally blind by then. I guess I was about 13. Mm -hmm. And um, he became my idol because he was the first one who really acknowledged that I had a brain. Mm -hmm. You know, and who picked me out as someone who was, um, was able to to do things using my mind, you know, using my brain, and that I was quicker than the other students. And he um, he fostered that, you know, he uh, he nurtured that in me. 
um, he would put a math problem on the board and then he'd say, okay, who has the answer to this? And he'd call on me and I would always have the answer yes. before anybody else. So I became like, you know, a star pupil and I was never a star pupil. I hated school. Interesting. I hated school because when I, when I could see, in some vision, I couldn't see enough to read. So in the very early years, I was I was uh, pointed at as being retarded or delayed. Oh gosh! So I was always excused from reading. The teacher would say, "Okay, you don't have to read. You can sweep the floor. You can be the blackboard blackboard monitor. You know that kind of stuff. You can run errands for the nurse." And the kids hated me, right? Because I had all these great. I'd have to do it the real work. <laughs> but in the meantime, you know, I hated it, and the kids would torment me. Yeah. They'd steal things from me. You know, we used to have these little jars of paste and scissors and things. They'd always steal them out of my desk and they'd steal my crayons and, you know, because they really, they really resented, I guess, that kind of looked as though I was favorite, you know. Yeah. The reality was the teachers didn't know what to do with me. They didn't understand that I was having a vision problem. No one understood until I was about eight. Oh. Um, they did these kind of eye tests. They'd stand you up in the classroom, they'd say, cover one eye and read the thing, and I couldn't read anything. So then they sent to my mother. And, but you see, I, I think, in truth, thinking back, and it's all retrospect, I think I was so adaptable right. in the way I behaved and that that I just, uh, that no one ever caught up with me for a while. Right. So when I think back now, the way I did things with minimal vision, I shudder. I mean, I remember crossing very large streets and not being sure of what was coming. Oh my. So you're not seeing things until the last minute. Um, so, you know, I think back now, because I really don't know if I ever really knew what perfect vision was or what, you know. I think I had enough, once I got glasses also, when they finally realized my eyes were so bad, and they gave me, um, like, I guess at the time they would have been called bifocals because I had the glass would had a line across a semicircle right. across the bottom of it and I would have to look through so my vision of course was much better when I had those glasses but even then they put me into something called a psych conservation class oh. I had the good old psych at the time so I must have been at least legally blind although I never knew I never understood I never knew anything about that when I was a kid growing up so was that a pull out thing where you were in the typical classroom and then you'd go to the class like, yes like, yeah. yes I was in what was called um, the site conservation class. But even that, you know, by the time that happened, and I was maybe in that class for two years. And it's really funny because the things kids remember, I guess, the only thing I, re the things I really remember about those classes, when I, those years when I had that usable vision was one, I started to learn to read. Because I really began to be able to see and I had large print books. And what a torment. Torturous, absolutely torturous. What do you um, mean? I couldn't, I and mean, the reading was a hard thing. Yeah, very hard. And um, and of course, I didn't I didn't enjoy it very much. And I used to have to practice. And my mother wasn't very helpful with it. And she used to make my brother try to listen to me read. And the kid had no patience to help me at home. Did you like Awful. and appreciate the large print books? And the I, I, all I remembered being a drudge. Yeah. I couldn't, I mean, I could see it, but it also was, I think that they didn't give me good reading skills. Mm. They, they didn't teach me well. I don't, I don't think that they spent enough time with me, under, not understanding that my skills at the time were so limited. 
all I remember this classroom was that the teacher used to take what we called at the time cheese boxes. You know when you had a box that was a long box like this, and you've got big wedges of American cheese. These boxes were empty. She'd bring them in and paint them a very dark blue with these ridiculous red flowers that she put on them. She painted them, and she'd use them and she'd make like a stepladder boxes for papers for the school pet for us to drop our papers in, like our homework assignments and things. I remember these ugly boxes. <laughs> <laughs> that and that the only other thing I was good at in those days was playing tiddlywinks. I was a tiddlywink champ. It was, a special game. It was the only one in class who could beat everybody. They had a special knack. And those are the only things I remember. It's a horror. And then that summer, about 1949, 39, 49, 50, I really probably lost a lot more vision. Mm. It was a very, very, it was August. It's this month, in fact, interesting. And um, it was around the house, and it must have been 100 degrees. And we didn't have air conditioning in those days. We had fans. Right. And I had my, not worn my glasses for a couple of days because I couldn't, you know, I was, the heat on your nose and the part, and it came Sunday and it was time to go visit my father's mother, grandma again, Sunday, so I put my glasses on and suddenly I looked and I said to my mother, mom, I can't see with my glasses, I can't see any better is what I meant. She said, well, you haven't had them on for a few days, maybe you have to get used to them again. I said, okay, you know, went to my grandmother's house. And my sister and my brothers used to love to play baseball. It was an empty lot, and they'd go off to the lot to play baseball with the other kids. And my mother gave me a dime. She said I could go buy a comic. And that was one of the streets I remember. I couldn't. I wasn't sure I was crossing from. I went to the store, and I looked at the comics, and I could see the bright colors of the comics, but I really couldn't see the comics. Mm-hmm. All I could see was it was a comic. I used to love the teenage comics, and there was one called Nellie the Nurse. And I could see that she had a white uniform when she was a nurse. Mm-hmm. And I bought this comic book, and I think I was even holding it upside down. Uh-huh. Anyway, I bought it. But what the crowning thing was, I walked into my grandmother's house for dinner, and I turned and said to my mother, why is it so dark in here? Yeah. And that was it. Then the whole roof fell in. You know, everybody got hysterical. It was a bright, sunny August day, and there were lots of windows in my grandmother's house. Then they started. They tried to figure out what was going on. So I went to a doctor two days later, um, and he confirmed that the retina in the, in the good eye had detached and lived, was practically detached. And I had just like, you know, what they might call today, they couldn't even call it finger count because my mother was there. How many fingers were I? How many, right. I, and I really couldn't see them. So I probably had enough vision to tell the difference between uh, the, dis- the difference between the curve and the gutter went to step down and went to step up. Uh-huh. I could see uh, forms, but I couldn't identify who they were. And I could see as a figure, shadow vision, whatever you want to call it. Right. So they did surgery and it didn't work. Right. So that was that. Mm. So then I lost it completely. You know. How'd that make you feel? Well, it's interesting because, again, as a kid and living with... Um, impaired vision, um, I don't think I was as traumatized as I should have been. Mm-hmm. You know, all I remember thinking was, because what I couldn't see, of course, in school started, I didn't go back to school, and I go, thank God, I'll never have to go to school again. <laughs> I remember that being very powerful in my life. 
So what I, but somehow somebody introduced me to what was at the time called talking books. And I had a fabulous time. I stayed home all day and I read and I read. And I think that helped me a great deal. Nice. Uh, I read on talking books. And I, I just, you know, I loved it. I swallowed it up. So, yeah. But that didn't last very long. But then some social worker came to my house. <laughs> that was terrible. She came to my house. She wanted me to go to school. She tried to convince my parents about these special school. She actually came from, I shouldn't name it, she came from the New York Institute. Is that right? Yeah, and my father was a very, as I said, they were very loving. My family was of not of the great educators. I mean, my mother quit school when she was in the seventh grade because her father died, and she was she was the second oldest of five children. She and her sister went to work as seamstresses in a factory, you know? Yeah. No, they had no welfare in those days. My father was probably a bright man, very soft to us, but probably out of school by the fourth grade to help his father on a laundry truck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, you know, education to them was something children should have. But anyway, so the social worker came and talked to them about the New York Institute. My mother and father were both there. And something about going to the school and staying there. I remember this, and I was there, and, she, and I said to she said, do I have any questions? And I said, well, do I have to stay there? And uh, I didn't want to go and stay in school. Right. She said, well, yes, once you come, you have to stay. And I said, then I don't want to go. <laughs> you know. Right. So she said to my father, she told him that she really, he really shouldn't let me get away with that. And that, you know, I was, the indication was I was spoiled. Oh. So he said, if she doesn't want to go, she doesn't have to. And he threw her out. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I really think that was my saving grace. Yeah. One of my saving graces at the time. Um, but then there was the public school system kicked in. Somebody came around, and so I went to public school. Yeah, I went to a regular public school with, a, with what at the time was a Braille class. And then I began to learn Braille and learn my, you know, picked up on skills, and I, I got good. I got pretty good, to use a term. Um, the Braille classes in those days had kids, as you know, who were from first grade on up to eighth grade. I see. That's how they had a class of different levels. And you came in for certain, le you came in to learn your skills, to get some study help. Uh, you spent lunch hour there, but then you were farmed out to the other classes, you know, for geography, history, English, whatever it was. How did you get to school? They bust us. Uh-huh. The, the, the board of ed bust. So they picked you up at your front yeah, door? Yeah, because I was out of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, they had Braille class. I lived in one place and the Braille class at school was in another area. So they bust me, and the teacher there was excellent also. She was very, very good. Did and you have any kind of mobility device to? No. No. I had a fight with the school, though, because they insisted on my having um, escorts. You know, they would assign a kid from the class to go with you. Right. And it would annoy me. I mean, that's what I think. I, I don't know how it started again, but I sort of like was able to get around these places without any devices. And they would get mad at me because they would find me in the hallways. And like they would insist that you know the kids could see use the elevator, and I said they were too slow. Uh -huh. And then they gave up, and they left me alone. <laughs> but there were times when like if I made a friend, you know, we'd walk to an English class with a friend, and the friend would be glad because we could ride the elevator. You know, ah. things. <laughs> Even all through high school, I didn't have any mobility devices. I just, I just could get around. Whatever it was, I could get around. So did you trail? Did you hold on yeah, to the shoulder? Yeah, um, I would trail. No, never hold on. I wouldn't even hold anybody's shoulder, not in your life. No. No. I trailed mostly. 
Um, the only time I ran into trouble was the high school I went to was a large high school. It was 5,000 students. And it was up in the Bronx, William Howard Taft. You've probably heard of it. I know the president. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> it's one of the high schools. I was bused to the high school, but once I got there, it was my domain. You know, the school was in the shape of a figure eight. I figured it out. Ah. And, you know, it had just a rectangle with the cut through in the middle so we could go through. And I knew my way around. I just did. Uh -huh. And I could trail or I could walk the straight hole. Or I just, you know, kind of knew certain things. What did you use for landmarks for that school? Um, the corridor, which cut through the center of the building. Okay. You and could hear that. You could tell the yeah. opening. Yeah, I could tell that. Also, depending on where the classrooms were, you know, I mean, I don't know. I can't tell you exactly what they were, you know, in terms of landmarks. I'm sure there must have been some landmarks. Certain doorways, certain turns in the hall, in the corridors. Um, maybe where the elevators were placed, the stairways. Yeah. So a lot of sounds and a lot of... Yeah, probably a lot of sounds. Yeah, a lot of... And then there were sometimes, like, it was a very long hallway. There may have been, like, a, um, a connecting door, you know, a corridor door. Uh-huh. And whether, if it was closed, that's fine. I could open it. If it was open, then you knew you were coming to something that was going through the archway, kind of. Right. Going under the archway. And, uh, I just... I don't know. I just, I think because, again, having adapted to using other ways and other, you know, senses, I managed to find my way around the school. And they would always complain to the, what we called the Braille room teacher at the time. And he would come, and he was a really sweet guy. He'd say to me, oh, honey, we don't want to get in trouble. And I said, no, we don't. What's happening now? <laughs> you know, they saw you walking down the hall. You didn't have your eyes open. You know, and eventually they did give up. They left me alone. Good. Um, <laughs> You had four minutes to change classes. And if I had to wait for the elevator to get from one floor to the fourth floor, I mean, it was ridiculous. Right. It just annoyed the hell out of me. And I was a big kid. I mean, I wasn't this puny little thing. Right. You know? So I could shoulder my way pretty easily. <laughs> um, so I guess they figured I was okay and knew where I was going. Do you ever remember getting completely lost and then finding yourself again and being real well, proud of that? I'll or tell you what, I very good. That was really awful. It was awful because I, I was um, in high, this is all high school now, mostly. Uh -huh. I had really kind of began to be budding in the field of math. So when I went into high school, I took, I took algebra and I took geometry and then I got better and better and I got the advanced algebra courses and I took solid geometry. And the guy who was chairman of the department really kind of nurtured me. I mean, he thought it was like, you know, the cat's meow. Like, he wouldn't even let me take the regents because he said it would be a waste of his time. Huh? So he gave me a 99 on the regents. I mean, wow. he pissed me a little bit. But then I said, this is such a big deal. Why aren't you giving me 100? And he yeah. says, no, he never gives anybody 100. Uh. Okay. <laughs> and I took an advanced math class when I was in high school, a college prep. Anyway. I remember leaving his office and we had a discussion about some, I used to, there was a, a sort of a club, mathematical club, and we'd go in just for the hell of it and we would have these crazy puzzles and things to solve, you know, it was like a recreational thing. Uh-huh. So I remember coming out of there and we'd been working on some recreation thing and I thought I had it figured out and I was walking down the hall, it was a very long card and I remember it was on the second floor or something, and I was very absorbed in this. And I knew at the end of the hall I had to make a right-hand turn. And I remember that. I remember the school building. 
and I was thinking about this problem, the thing about this problem, and I anticipated, because I came to an opening, and I just automatically turned, automatically, instead of falling down a flight of stairs. <sighs> what happened was, the middle of the corridor had this huge, open, winding staircase, and I just was not thinking, and so I, I must have gotten the sense that this was the, the opening and the turning, and I, you know, turned. And I, I tripped on the top steps. Fortunately, I didn't fall down the whole flight of stairs. But in those days, we were wearing these things called tapisios, you know, these little, they almost look like ballet shoes. Ah. Slip-ons. And I remember tripping, and I grabbed the banister, and I wound up sitting on the top step. My shoe went so bumble, bumble, down the foot. And in those days, I had, I don't know if you're familiar with the old tile arithmetic slates, the math, do you remember those? No. Oh, the metal. And they had these little pieces of tile in them, and you would do your math by, it's, it's a wild kind of thing. I'm sure it's extinct by now. Anyway, the thing is metal, and it fell out of my arm, and bang, 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 to the place. And two of the teachers came running out to see what happened. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, I, you know, might drop my slave. Well, I guess they must be. So they reported it to my teacher. And he says, oh, I understand you fell down the stairs. I said, oh, God, I didn't fall down the stairs. I said, I started a trip on the step. I said, I was thinking, I forgot where I was turning. But my stuff made so much noise that everybody tried. So, I mean, it was, that's about, like, the, the other times that I might have had a, a mishap was I did trail the walls. And one of the things I guess I did do was I used to walk, I used to walk very fast. Um, once in a while, I would hit a water bucket, you know, yeah. a mop with a bucket, and once I knocked one over completely, so like the bucket just went over. <laughs> so you weren't happy about those kinds of things. It didn't happen too often, but I thought, well, you know. She had talking books in middle school, and eventually she learned Braille to read independently. She was learning math and history, everything on her own. But the most natural independence of all, walking. Joe was taught a dependent solution. The only solution they could think of was for her to walk with an escort to keep herself safe. Even though by the time Joe became blind at age 11, long canes had been used for 10 years already, they were not shared with a middle school student or even provided to her in high school. She wanted a dog guy, which was a much older mobility tool. Morris Frank got his first dog guide in 1928 as an adult. And dog guides are still only available to someone once they have graduated from high school. This was understood. Joe was evaluated on the long cane, but she was never provided one. This suggests that independent travel tools for blind persons were considered the domain of adults. They were invented for adults who were blind, and it took decades to bring long canes to high schoolers. That happened first in the 1960s in California. How can it be? There exists no logic. Why would it make sense that once we figured out that a blind adult could be safer with a long white cane that we needed to find a way to make devices for blind toddlers because they need our protection most of all. Why did it take 70 years from the advent of the long cane for blind adults to conceive and build a pediatric belt cane for blind toddlers? 
there's no comprehension except to understand that we have a misplaced perception of the relevance of sight to safety and the necessity of moving about independently. One school of thought would suggest that if you don't provide a mobility tool, you are keeping a child safer because then they won't be out there all on their own and get into trouble. People have worried more about orientation and disorientation, that perhaps if you were to give a child a safer way to move around, they would move around and get lost. But what we have heard so far in all of our interviews was, I know where I was. I knew where I was. I had plenty of ways to know where I was going and where I was, except if it snowed. But I was at risk for falling down the stairs if I were thinking about a math problem or running into an obstacle like a pail filled with water in the middle of the hallway in high school. And what do you do about that? You use a mobility tool if you can't see where you're going. And yet, even if you had a guide, guides are not good mobility tools. I know that because I am a terrible mobility tool sometimes. As a guide, I'm terrific with orientation. But how do you remember that you are now twice as wide? How do you remember that you need to stop at the stair and bring that person up next to you so they can be at the edge of the step, so they can begin taking the stairs after you take your first step? These are skilled guide techniques that a sighted kid in high school has no clue about. So guides are not a safety tool. They are an orientation tool. They've always been an orientation tool. And therefore, again, safety was never a consideration, not for Joe and not for any of the children who were in high schools doing algebra in math club, oriented as as well as anybody, but at risk for falling down the stairs and then embarrassed when they did because somehow they should have been paying attention. And I feel so adamant and so passionate that we have to stop this crazy talk. Blind kids can figure out where they are. They can even get better with orientation, with moving around. They can learn to ask questions and figure stuff out, but we need to give them better mobility tools as young as possible that are as effective as possible. And if when we don't, this is what happens. And Joe was lucky, right? Joe was lucky. Nothing, she didn't die, right? She was lucky. But how lucky is it to fall down the stairs? How lucky is it to trip over an unseen water pail? And you say, well, sighted people do it. No, sighted people will look at that and think, oh, how ridiculous. I should have been watching where I was going. And they get better at looking out for themselves. That's not an option for blind people. They can't get better at looking out for themselves. They can't see. So they need a mobility tool and stop the comparison there. It doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't do anybody any good. So let's continue because Joe is so interesting and she has a lot more to tell us. This has been your commercial break for promotion of mobility tools. They shouldn't leave that stuff That's out in the right. middle of classes anyway. When kids, anybody, the halls were packed with students, with 5,000 students in that school at the time. 
And when they give you these bells to ring and you have to change classes, and you know, everybody was running. That's right. So I thought, well, that, that could be the place to do it. But that's the kind of stuff that would happen, basically, you know? Um, yeah. It was a great time. I, didn't, I don't really remember having this. High school was wonderful. I mean, I had my problems with some classes. Like, I was not a very good history student. Well, would you, like, after school, go out and hang out any place? I couldn't. See, that was the one drawback, and that's that's the one thing that's funny, because when I was in college, I, we were doing some papers once, and I think an English course, and the one thing I wrote, I wrote a paper on hanging out, and I said that one of the things that happens with disabled students um, is that because the schools are not in your neighborhood, see, you're not a part of the neighborhood. Right. You get bussed in, you get bussed out. So I really didn't know anybody in my, I mean, I knew some of the kids I grew up with originally in my neighborhood, but I was not attending the schools they were. I was not having the same um, kind of schedule they were. And so when they came home, they had a clique, and I was not part of that clique. Yeah. They were not very accepting. You know, once in a while I would try. They would come home after school, they were teenagers. What would they do? They'd walk up and down the block waiting for the boys to come out. <laughs> or they would, I remember even doing this, going in, the, a couple of them lived in my building, and once in a while, I guess they would they'd feel bad, they'd invite me down to, to be with them after school. And they would sit there the whole time, and the biggest activity was trying on clothes. Uh, and trying on bras, that was a big thing. <laughs> and they'd look in the mirror, you know, and they'd do all this stuff, and they'd fuss with their hair and things. So, Basically, I could be there, but I could be involved, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't the kind of activity they could share with me in the same way. Yeah. So, but after school, what would happen is, you know, I'd have a lot of telephone friends. Yeah. That's what happened. I spent hours on the telephone. So, from what I gather, um, you really didn't have a mobility instructor, or did you? No. Okay. No. You're right, I did not have a mobility instructor. So you had a little bit of assessment, somebody sort of checked you out on a cane, but yeah, then you went straight to a dog. I told them I wanted school. to get a dog, and I think what they were really checking out also was the fact that I had good orientation. Uh-huh. It'd be nice if you could, you know, anticipate the stairs with some sort of tool well, <laughs> while you know where you are, but... You know. <laughs> But nobody introduced it, even in high school. No one came and said, no, never in high school. The only place they ever introduced it was here at the Lighthouse at the end of my third year when I was finished my junior year. And they did an assessment to get me ready to see, see I wanted to live away from home. Uh -huh. And they wanted to see, I guess they did psychological testing and they did, they made stupid Wild. things. They made me put a rubber mat together and they made me count <laughs> little things, you know, nuts and bolts in it. To, one from this and one from this. And I was so, I can't tell you how. Here's this math scholar, right? I had these sword. rubber pieces, red and black, and I had to make a red mat with a black diamond. Well, I just, it's really funny. I don't know how it was coincidental. I made this beautiful whole red mat, and in the center was the black diamond, and for some godforsaken, it was right smack in the black diamond, I had one red star. I don't know. Sounds pretty to me. It was, but it wasn't supposed to oh, be that Oh, not supposed to no. do that, I see. I think I forgot at one point because my mind would drift. Right. My mind would I'm drift. I'm sure I did. So this, for a month I went through this. And, um, you know, they decided it was okay I could go to college. Because the state was going to sponsor me. That was, ah. that was all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? But I really didn't have any kind of um, 
mobility. Now, in all fairness, in all fairness, I don't know if I would have requested it or suggested it, but I was very, um, I was negative. I was not responsive to their help for mobility. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I could get around fine. I, you know, especially indoors, I had no problem. I, I traversed the whole building and the school, and so I didn't have a need to have a mobility device at that point. Um, and I didn't go out very much. You know, every place I went, there were buses. I was bused, and, and went, even down to the lighthouse when I came sometimes on Saturdays, they had transportation. All the kids were picked up, all of us. So, and it wasn't until I finished high school and got my dog and went off to school, you know, that I did a lot more traveling. How did you learn your way around your college and with um, the dog? And, and what was that like, getting your dog? I'm trying to read. <laughs> What do you mean? What was it like? What was it? Uh, oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. Oh, it was just like, I had this huge hairy shepherd at the time. I was 18. And it was like, oh, the, the, the we were at Morristown for a month because he was my first dog. Uh-huh. It was wonderful. I had the best time of my life. I bet. There were some, there was another couple other younger people there. See, what they do is they save the summer months for the students who are out of school. And they do that now also. If you're a student, you know, you're in school all year, you really can't take the time off. So the months of July and August of these schools, for the guide dog schools are usually filled with students. Yeah, you know, young people. Uh -huh. And uh, there was another, remember this, they, and they would match you up, we work in pairs. They had some older people, they had some slower people, but there was this one other fellow from Texas, I'll never forget, he had a big black dog named Nipper. And, uh, I think, I don't remember if he was finished with high school or if he was working, I don't think, I, yeah, I think he was on his way to school also. Anyway, um, they matched us up to work together and we had a wonderful time. We would race on dogs. Oh, fun. And we were really fast, you know, we were young and fast and it was a new experience and it was a lot of fun. So I don't know, so then we left and came back home and what I learned was you really shouldn't do things like that. You shouldn't race your dog around. <laughs> Because it scared the shit out of everybody. <laughs> oh, it's scaring everyone else. Everybody else. Not you and your dog. No, it's scaring <laughs> everybody. I mean, I, first of all, I couldn't walk with anybody because they couldn't keep up with us. Uh -huh. um, and also, you know, I would go into stores and people would just be horrified. And this huge dog and this person racing through the soap. And you're very tall. Yeah, it wasn't a good image at all. In fact, I'll never forget that I went to one store. And as I passed down the aisles, I heard one woman just saying, See that great? See that creepy girl with that lion? <laughs> I to myself, That's oh a good my, idea. What an image. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was not, a, it's not the kind of image you want to leave behind. So you got your dog, you're out, you're at stores by yourself, you're in yeah. college, you're not going with people, you're going oh, independently. How do you prepare for that? How do you well, find your way Well, what around? did I do at the time? I think I must have had. There was somebody who showed me initially, there must have been some orientation around the, the college in the first place. Someone, I'm sure, showed me some of the paths. Now, in terms of the buildings, you know, there were paths to follow. Uh -huh. There was, a, Adelphi had a lot of green, greenery at the time. It was a real campus. Yeah. So there were cement paths Good. outside the dorm, and I could follow the path. And yeah, did I get lost? Of course I got lost. I mean, there were times I'd go around and around. You know, times I would come to a building that was the wrong one. But eventually, I mean, you figure it out. Um, 
Was that using sighted assistance? Well, I would go along and say, hey, where's East Hall? You right. Know? Or, I mean, or what building is this? And there were always students around. Yeah. Or where do I get to uh, lodge it or whatever the hell the science building was at the time. Right. So, sure, I was always asking questions. And then that students were going to certain buildings and I would follow them. Uh-huh. So, I mean, eventually, you know, the only time it really became very difficult, very difficult, and I, I know at one time, we used to have some very heavy snowstorms. Uh -huh. We had some heavy snowstorms out there that would cover everything, so there were no paths. And of course, the students always would just cut crisscross along the campus and this kind of thing. And it, the dog was pretty good. I mean, she she could, after a while, you know, you go to a building, you, you go there often enough, you know. But there were times when there was so much snow and everything was so buried that um, one time I was trying to come back to my dorm and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And this dog would come up to this huge pile of snow and she'd stop and I'd say, no, no, and I'd retrace my steps. This must have gone on for, got a good 40 minutes and I was getting so upset. Couldn't find anything. She'd keep coming, I'd yell at her and say, no, that's okay. All of a sudden, one time, like, I would be here, and all of a sudden, way up here, I hear a banging. But I figured out that there was somebody at the window, and I heard her say, go around, go around. And I realized what happened was the steps to the entrance were buried. Uh, absolutely buried, and the front door was buried. My she was telling goodness. me to go around to the side of the building where they could clear the path. Until I figured that out, you know, and this poor dog, I remember, I got down in the snow, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh. And I hugged her, and I said, you know, she was trying to show me steps that were under all the snow. Wow. So that stuff was, but you know what I mean, that's the, the rare instant um, where you can be very confused about what's going sure. on. Sure. That was a real awful kind of time. But once, you know, I figured this out, then it was, you know. So you really haven't used any other, any kinds of cane or any other mobility tool or just well, I've used a cane minimally. There was actually a time between dogs when uh -huh. my first dog had died, and um, I was, in fact, I was working here back in, the, in those days, because I was here for a while, then I left, and then I had come back, but it was back in the 60s, and I lost my dog. She had died in a surgery, and I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm ever going to get another dog again. It was difficult. Yeah. So for a couple of months, I used a cane coming up to the lighthouse, and, you know, if I need to, I can do it. I'm not comfortable with it. And then there are times when I'll go out and meet somebody and I'll go a short distance with a cane. What kind of cane would you use then? What kind of a cane? Mm -hmm. What kind do you like? I use a folding cane. Folding? Yeah, because then I need to, you know, I need to, once I'm going where I'm going, I like to get rid of it. Yeah. I like to fold it up and just put it away. So I always use a folding cane. Do you have a particular kind of tip that you like no. better? No, I, I'm not experienced enough to know. Uh -huh. I just know that I need one that doesn't stick in all the cracks, because that makes me crazy, or that goes down the holes in the sewer things. Have you ever tried a roller tip or anything no, like that? No, I've never tried a roller tip. Have you ever tried Nobody a roller has, I never has. Electronic travel aid? No. Did I ever try an electronic travel aid? Um, when I was at Marstown one time, getting another dog. <laughs> yes, sweet. There was... Um, they were trying these funny kind of glasses that you wear and you put the sure. overheads. But no, I never really, did I ever experiment with another kind of, well, I've seen them, yeah, you, yeah. Around here, Bob would sometimes come up with a cane and we went down and we would, you know, it would beep if there was an overhead. It would 
have a higher beep and a lower beep if there was something in front of you. But I never really used them outside. I was just testing them around here. What did you think of them? Um, I don't know. You know, I have trouble with a lot of things that, I, that I'm not comfortable with because all these beeps and noises and being outside in the streets with the horns and everything mm -hmm. else, I don't know what, I don't, I think they could work very well for some people mm -hmm. and maybe they could work very well for me if I concentrated in that area, but I can't, I don't have enough of an opinion. Okay. I certainly think that uh, they're an option. You know, I would never, I wouldn't say no, they have no, I, you know, I think they're, I think any device you could come up with that helps people is a plus. And I wish I were better with a cane because I think that there are times when, you know, when it, I could, when I use it, if I could feel more comfortable, it would be better for me. Um, how many canes do you own? Well, there's one behind the door there standing up. Uh -huh. Right? Yeah. I have one at home standing up in a corner. <laughs> I have one here in the bottom of my desk. Or I have a few, three, yeah. four, I don't know, you know, different places. Um, so how do you feel about traveling alone to unfamiliar places? Well, what do you mean, traveling what? With my dog? Yeah. Oh, well, I do it. How do I feel about it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's something you do. Uh-huh. I mean, if you were telling me that I went to Washington a couple of weeks ago to a conference. I went alone. Uh -huh. um, the hotel wasn't too bad. I, I think I figured it out. I was only there three days. Um, it was okay. Uh -huh. If I were there longer, I probably would have, you know, once or twice. What happens in strange places is they often have like elevator banks and four, ele four or five elevators, even like here, you know? We have four elevators, and depending on which one you come off of, right. you have to turn. Well, the hotels do the same thing. So there were times when I would come off the elevator, <clears throat> make a left turn, and realize that that wasn't the direction I knew I would have to. I spent some time doubling back and forth in those couple of days. But it's workable. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't find it. Uh, now, if you were telling me that I was going to go off to a foreign country, right. well, obviously I'd have more concern about it. And I think what I've learned in my senior years here is that you need to do a little more groundwork before you just, you know, there was a time when I got my first dog and I did a lot of traveling. I would just go, boom, yeah. you know, and I'd get there and I'd figure it out. Uh, now probably what I try to do is I surprise myself because I say, hey, look at this, I can actually figure this out before I get there. Oh. You know, or I can do some preparatory work or I can... Like uh, what? Like what? Well, for instance, this last conference, I never did this. I've attended conferences over the years, lots of conferences. Okay. I would just get on the plane and I'd show up. Well, the last year or two, I went to a conference in San Francisco about two years ago. And I, in one of the brochures, I noticed that <clears throat> it said for special needs. And suddenly I thought, well, what does that mean? So I called them to find out that I could get certain arrangements or materials in advance, nice. or I could find out certain things. I never did that before. I would just show up in a place. I always did. No one ever told me that there was anything, there was never anything special in the years that I grew up. That was the problem. Right. So I never came to expect anything. Right. I mean, I went all through college with a hand slate and stylus. Wow. And a braille writer, but which I didn't use in my classroom. Right. 
I had a hand slate, a pocket slate, and a stylus. I went all through graduate school with that kind of stuff. And maybe then I began to use a, you know, a little tape for player. But truthfully, I used the Braille pocket slate and stylus. Carried it in my pocketbook everywhere I went with my little Bible, you know, kind of thing. So I never really came to expect anything in preparation for. Well, if, say if you're going to go to an unfamiliar place in New York, would you create a map for yourself? Do you use maps? Do you? No, I don't use maps. Um, I, I sometimes would like to, but I've never found any of the maps here very useful. The only maps I've ever, ever seen in my life that were wonderful were the maps they have in Morristown, which were laid out street by street. They actually carved them. Uh, they had them made and carved. You could learn the route by following this map. Now, I do have, not maybe it's faded a little over the years, but I've had, I have very good visual uh, vehicles. Oh. And I do have, um, I think I, because of all my math training, and especially when I was doing a lot of geometry and stuff, solid geometry, you know, I have a lot of three-dimensional kinds of thinking. You know, the thing that still makes me crazy is when I, when I don't know something and what I've been tending to do more probably is avoiding certain things. For instance, I don't know if you know the West Village. Not really. Well, the West Village is like, um, it's like someone went through it and decided with a little, a little hacksaw which way the streets should go. There's no rhyme or reason. <laughs> you know, you're walking down the street right. and you might come to an intersection except the corner is no corner on the next side it just goes into four lanes of traffic oh uh, right so you have to go this way or this way and I those things make me crazy or something that winds up coming into a circle okay or suddenly Broadway and Fifth Avenue merge at 24th Street and you can wind up nowhere if you know Broadway if you know that area right so I mean those are the kinds of things which I wish people would put on a map Yes. But I never see it. All I see are these stupid maps they have on these floors, which to me make absolutely... I mean, I can't fit... I don't even take the time to... The blocks of roofs. That is such a waste to me. Uh, I mean, it's silly. It doesn't... To me, I shouldn't say that. You know, again, it's a tool that's useful for some people. For me, it makes no sense. If I walk down the hallway, I'll figure it out. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of traveling around, you know, you just don't know... And it's very hard sometimes to figure out. Uh, New York is not too big because there's a rhyme and reason, and there is a pattern to the streets. But I don't know what was the question. <laughs> no, you were talking about maps, and and so you get to this place, say, what you're talking about, where the, the streets merge, or in the West Village. Um, what do you do about it? I mean, do you ask for assistance? Do you? Yeah. Sometimes I wound up in trouble because not realizing it, like when I was first doing this, not anticipating the crossings and things, I would wind up, you know, realizing that now the cars were coming not only from in front of me, but behind me and alongside of me and, right. you know, this kind of thing. And then I'd get a little panicky sure. and I would start yelling at the dog thinking she's missed the corner and why isn't she going straight? And there was uh -huh. no straight, uh -huh. you know. So what really happens is, quite honestly, since I don't live in that, if I lived in that neighborhood, I think I would, I would know more. I actually lived down in that area. But since I only go down there at certain times, I either take a route that I absolutely know, even if it's a little bit longer, right? you know, and avoiding that craziness, or I'll ask someone. And of course, it's funny because you've got to watch what you say. Is there a street on the other side of the street? You know, <laughs> you know do the curbs line up? They don't even know what you're talking about. Right. 
So um, if somebody says, if I'm not sure of a crossing and someone says, do you want help? I say, sure, may I follow you? Yeah. And I just let it go with that. I've gone beyond the point of having to feel that I can master everything. Yes. You know, it's like, I don't care anymore. It's not worth it. Um, you know, to do, to prove every point to myself, I'm beyond that. But in a sense, you have mastered it because yeah. you've taken every advantage of what's out there. Yeah. To get what you want, which is to get over to the other side. I suppose the, the bottom line for me is this, okay? If I'm in a confusing area, or if I'm faced with a task which is very complicated, and somebody says, do you want some help? I can say yes. If there's no one there to say, do you want help, I know I can work it out. Right. So, you know, that's the bottom line. Well, do you ever initiate, like, you hear that somebody's there, and you say, excuse me, can I get some help from you? Oh, sure. Uh -huh. If I want it, absolutely. How do you do that? Do you, you sort of hear them? What do you do? Well, I figure this. If I'm really in an area where I'm kind of stuck and I'm not sure what I'm faced with, and I need some help, and I'm not sure. I mean, I'll say, excuse me, if nobody answers, who cares? Because uh -huh. there's nobody there to tell me I'm not talking to anybody, right? <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but somebody's there, then they'll answer me. Right. Most of the time you can hear people. Uh -huh. or what happens very often, though, is you hear people, but they are either not tuned into you because they're running in a different direction, right. or they're further than you think they were, than right. they are from where you're standing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you don't get a response anyway. But I figured, you know, if they don't hear me, then it doesn't matter. What can they say? You know, no one can tell me you're being silly. Uh, right. That's a poll you're talking about. You know, because if someone was there, they would respond, or they won't <laughs> respond. So, I mean, talking to the poll. The reality is you can't everything. worry about a lot of things after a while, you know. Um, you do the best you can. And I think I learned something from... From having the guide dog, too, I learned something that was very important. And what the instructors always said, and I think this is it's very meaningful, if you make a mistake, that's not what matters. What matters is that you're able to correct it, that you can find your way out of it. You know, so if it takes you a little longer, so if you, you know, you get a little frustrated, but the point is, it's not the mistake you should focus on. Right. You know, and I'm sure you tell the students this also. It's really important is that you stop and say, okay, now what did I do? And to retrace your steps and to try to figure out, you know, what's going on. I had a very funny, this is, this is a very funny example of something because they also tell you with a guide dog, you know, they'll say, follow your dog, follow, let the dog lead, follow your dog. Well, there's a very bad crossing up here around the lighthouse on 60th Street in Lexington. It's a really terrible crossing. Oh, yes. Terrible crossing. Up, you know, just facing the bank. Yes. It's it's terrible because it's a narrow street, and there's a lot going on, and the traffic comes west from east, and it's just... They seem to forever be doing construction there, Yeah, too. and there's construction. And all in the middle of the street is a metal plate, and it tends to get very hot, especially with the oh, very yeah. bad weather. It gets very, very hot, that metal plate. And my dog has decided she is never going to cross mm -hmm. that street. So what she tends to do if I'm facing north, and there's Lexington Avenue on my right, mm -hmm. she veers out into the middle of Lexington oh. Avenue and will make a wide thing around that metal plate. And I have been, I fight with her every time I go over there to keep her from doing that. So the other day, <laughs> I kept stepping off the sidewalk, one foot into Lexington Avenue with my hips swinging, ready to go into the back across 50, across 60th. 
And this dog is fighting me every step, backing up on me and not wanting to move. So finally some, some man said, or some woman said, oh, there's a metal plate. I says, I know, I'm trying to get around it, but she's really afraid of it. And she said, well, she said, maybe there's smoke coming out of it. It was steaming, this mother's thing. This woman turned and she said, yes, you really should listen to your dog. <laughs> I said, well, you know, she's right. I knew this dog was done good for a reason. When you spit enough the plate, this metal plate is hot as hell. It's like 100 degrees that day, and then there's smoke coming out of it, steam coming out of it. You know, she was showing good judgment, but it was really funny. She said, you should listen to your dog. <laughs> You know. Well, I'm wondering if there's anything that happens frequently when traveling that you like least. Yeah, it rains. <laughs> bad weather. I hate when it rains. Uh, it really does. You know, you know, bad weather in itself cuts out your hearing. Yeah. It really does cut your hearing. And construction. I mean, I think one of the things, and I was talking about a cane before, like, I, am, I really am... I'm envious of Betty, you know, Betty, but she's a fabulous traveler, cane traveler. And I wish I could be a good cane traveler. But then I stop and I think that with the amount of construction going on in the city, um, the things that you come upon, it's getting worse and worse, and it's getting harder and harder to really understand what you're up against. Mm -hmm. You know, So I don't know anymore if a cane, you know, if that kind of traveling, if I would feel as secure. I, I, I don't know if I would. Having the dog does make me feel more secure in terms of, of construction, but that is such a, a problem. Yeah. Um, the area I'm living in, not only is it just construction on the streets, but the area I'm living in, they're now doing what they call, well, they're pointing bricks on the apartment buildings. And they've got all this scaffolding up. And the scaffolding are almost like um, where you have to walk between lanes, almost like lanes are set up on the sidewalk. And it's just, I mean, it is just unbelievable. They're very, very difficult. Excuse me. So I think that that's really become, uh, I don't have the patience that I did. I don't find, I don't find these things like a challenge anymore. I would just wish they'd go away. Yeah. You know, at one time it was like, oh man, you know, this is really great. But it's not so great anymore. It's a pain in the neck. It's, a, it's more than I need to cope with more than I want to cope with. So the noise, the construction, um, the weather conditions, all of those become just additional uh, factors to have to deal with. You do it. I mean, there's no question you do it. And, yeah. You know, but you, you just say sometimes, you know, you prefer you didn't have to. Do you, have you encountered actuated intersections? What's that? The ones where they're no longer on a cycle, the cars trigger them. Uh, not so much here, but I have um, out of town, out of other city areas, other areas. Yeah, yeah. I've seen. I, I don't know. What have I done about it? I don't remember. I've just done it. You know. See, I guess some of me also does have to trust the dog sense, um, and also just check things out. You know, if I'm not sure, one of the things I've taken more to doing, and I don't know if it's a factor of my, my aging process or. Um, what do you call it, that things have become more complicated, but I probably stop more often now and try to see, if I'm not sure what's going to happen, I, I may let the traffic go by. Yeah. I may wait it out. I unfortunately have a reputation of not doing this. Uh -huh. Of 
you know, trying to beat the lights and beat this and make the the L crossings, especially, you know, before the lights change and uh -huh. stuff. But there are times when I'm in an unfamiliar area and I'm really not sure what's going on. Um, and I'll just try to wait it out or I'll ask. Yeah. I have no problems asking. You know, I have no compulsions about saying, oh, I shouldn't ask. I ask. If people are there, I'll ask. Is this light changing? Uh, is there a light here? Or is it just a stop sign? Now, down in the West Village, you have a series of streets where there are only stop signs. Right. You know, and so some of them you come to know that there are just stop signs at certain streets if you travel them enough, but otherwise it's, uh, it's guesswork. Yeah. You know, it's just guesswork and uh, trying to figure it out. What do you want sighted pedestrians to do when they help? Oh, when they help. <laughs> or so if you had something else, get out of my way. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's okay, too. To get out of my way. I mean, I love people who step off the curb and say, can I help you? And then they're walking backwards. They're thinking they help you. know, I said, just, just go away. Oh, my. You know, they don't know how to. Well, they're better. I have to say, pedestrians are much, much better. Obviously, we've been doing a lot of education in public awareness. So they really are better. Um, what do I want them to do? I don't know, it's hard to say. Yeah. You know, they're not bad, they're okay. Sometimes they're a nuisance in that. I guess my one wish is people, you know, if I'm going along the street and I look like I'm okay, you know, not to stop you and say, can I help you? Right. I mean, you know, or I'm out there a lot of times, and this is, this is specifically with the dog. Constantly they'll say, your dog's in the street. <laughs> or, the dog is off the curb, you know. It's like, Jesus lady, what do you think I'm doing here? How do you handle it? Do you just it ignore It depends him? on my mood. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just say, yes, I know. Right. And that's it. And sometimes they'll be satisfied and they'll go away. Sometimes they'll persist. Well, do you want to get him back up? No. <laughs> then I, sometimes I'll get just say, well, she needs to go to the bathroom. Oh, okay. You know, if I'm really frustrated, I mean, some guy came and said to me, well, she's peeing now. I said, <laughs> <laughs> what she's doing. Yes, she's doing. She's peeing. I said, yes, thank you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> People are just funny. They mm -hmm. really are. I guess the thing that's a, that disturbs me the most, but I deal with it, is that it's like the inferences from the public yeah. is that you really don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know. They have to tell you all these things because you have no sense that your dog's in the street. Right. Or that you're missing a certain thing. That there's, there's a, um, a sense that you're unaware. Yeah. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. But I don't know. I guess it's also because they probably cannot understand not seeing how you would know. Right. It's their, it's kind of their lack of understanding. But, um... Um, just a couple more and then I'll let you back to uh, work. Um... Gotta get my dog in. How, do you belong to any professional or consumer organizations? Well, that's two questions, right? Yeah. Professional organizations? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. I belong to the National Association of Social Workers. Uh, I've belonged to a number of things over the years professionally, you know, group psychotherapy associates. Uh, uh, I don't know if these mean anything to you, but professionally I have, yeah. And I was a member, I am a member now of, but an inactive member of the American Council of the Blind. Uh -huh. And a dues paid member. There was a time years back when I was uh, president of the New York State Council, the American Council of the Blind, <coughs> for a number of, for about three or four years. Um, 
that kind of thing. How did ADA impact you? Do you notice a difference before and after that law? Um, I don't think it's impacted me specifically a great deal, except uh, I feel that I have, when I'm denied something, I have something to call upon. That's, of course, a big help. Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm answering, I'm saying yes and no at the same time, which is, is probably not a good way to phrase it. Most of what I've done, I think, this, I guess this is what I feel, most of what I've done, I've done before the law has really come into place, yeah. given the fact that I'm not 20 anymore. Yeah. You know? So most of the big battles were battles that I've had to, to struggle with and things that I've had to work my way through with very little you know, uh, legal support. Like what? Um, thinking. Just, I guess, going to school and demanding certain things. You know, um, I can't even truly say accommodations because I never really had much in the way of accommodations. But when I got to college, there were certain classes they wouldn't let me into because they felt. Uh, I couldn't handle them, um, and it wasn't a question of saying, well, make, make some accommodation for me. You think I can't handle it? For, okay, when I took biology, they didn't want to let me into the lab uh, because they were afraid. I don't know. I don't remember why. So what happened was I had become friendly with one of the biology teachers, and so he let me in on the weekend when no one was there. Uh, so there were manipulations that I did. Right, kind of things. Not bad, just getting around the people who said no. Yes. Kind of thing. Because there was no way to say, you have to let me in, you have to do this. And it's interesting because I was talking to someone recently who works at the, who is it, was head of, who is head of the uh, um, disabled students office at one of the schools. And he said to me, which is true, you know, even though there's the ADA, there are still many places and teachers who feel that, yes, they have to let you into the classroom, but they don't have to do anything more. Right. You know, there's still those at the, where people walk the fine lines. They, they can do certain things, but they haven't really, they'll, they'll find ways to get around things. So I didn't have even any of that support when I was going to school. So that I just had to find my own way to get, I had to prove everything. I guess that's been the, pro that's been the hardest thing. Yeah. I could never be a student. I had to be a good student. I couldn't just be a good student. I had to be a terrific student. Right. You know, it was always that kind of thing. Uh, I could not do my assignments uh, on Monday and Tuesday. I had to do my assignments six, seven days a week. Okay. I had to always do more. I had to always be one step ahead of everybody else. Well, um, practically, like wheelchair ramps, has that has that affect your travel at all like it does a cane traveler? No. No. Well, how does it affect the cane traveler? Well, sometimes it's harder to, to detect. Well, I was just going to say, when you said wheelchair ramps, the, the, what I think when, I was thinking of ramps as actual ramps into Oh, curb cuts, I guess is what I'm curb talking about. Cuts, curb cuts, yes, can be tricky. Uh, because what's happened too, now in the schools they're teaching the dogs to stop at curb cuts. Initially, when I first got some of the other dogs, they were regular curbs. So when I, what happened was, as I was traveling, I began to realize that the dog sometimes doesn't stop because there is no curb. 
the dog keeps going. So you can wind up out in the street. So you as well. wind up out in the street until you suddenly realize that you're in the street. Right. So you eventually pick, you begin to look out for it yourself, and that means that when I'm walking down the street and I'm coming to what I think is the end of the street because I can hear things, I listen for how close am I to the traffic. How close am I to my, my uh, perpendicular traffic? So if I'm walking this way, you know, how close is my perpendicular traffic? Am I coming to a corner? You know, so I have to be very much, I, I don't think any person who doesn't see or who has low vision can just decide that the dog or the cane is gonna do it for them. Right. You know, um, you know, they can say trust your dog, but the reality is, man, if you don't know what's going on, it's not gonna work. Right. So you have to trust the dog to make certain decisions for instance, I, I know that at one time, or the, there will come a time where I was trying to cross, and this has happened on 2nd Avenue, and it's happened on um, the 5th Avenue sometimes. It's very bad weather. It's raining really hard, and there are trucks and buses going by, and I cannot hear anything. Cannot hear anything. And I think I have the light, and eventually, and I'll say forward to the village. And I say, okay, this is it. You know, I suspend everything, put all my trust into this creature. Yeah. Yeah, and then I hit the other side and I say, God, we made it, you know? Yeah. And there's another thing that's happening on the streets, and it makes me crazy, the summer especially, these ice cream trucks, oh. these Mr. Softies, yeah. they stop at the corners and they have their motors running. And some of them are very loud, and you can't hear the changing of traffic. Oh, right. You can't hear it. So between the construction and that, it cuts out your ability to really hear clearly what's going on. So it's the noise level that's become more of a, of a you know, a, a burden than anything else. Because is that your primary kind of landmark? Is that what you use? With, um, what? Noises, the sounds of things. What are your primary landmarks that you use? Noises are a deterrent. I mean, I'll use certain noises that are constant. For instance, on one of the streets I travel on, there is a an exhaust fan of something coming out of a store. Uh -huh. But it's always there. It's been there for years. Yeah. So I know that I'm two-thirds or 60% down the block when I hear that noise coming up. Right. And I'll know I'm at a certain point. That's the store. That's the one store. That ha and I know that to the left of that store is this, and to the right of that store is something else. I mean, I've learned that, and that's a constant. Um, but mostly you use... What do I use as landmarks? Yeah. God, I'm so bad at this. I don't really know. <laughs> I use, well, streets. I mean, the number of streets you walk. Uh-huh. Um, you can tell when you come to a corner, you know, when the building falls back and you've got air pressure or you've got... Sometimes there's sound, but there's so many sounds these days right. that I don't know what you can depend on. If I come to a corner, certain times, like people will say lots of times, why don't they use those audible light signals like they have out of the city mm -hmm. and other places on the bells or the birds or whatever they are? But there are some, some corners where if you listen, the light box clicks. Yeah. It happens down here in the corner of 59 in Lex. You know, when you're crossing there? Yeah. The light box, especially on the other side of 59, of uh, Lexington, the light box clicks. So if you pick up a sound, you know, you can count, you can then try to use it. Um, smells, smells are deceiving. People say, can't you smell it? No, because I'll tell you one. There are pizza stores and there are drug stores and they have vents. And when you get the smell, it's not the entranceway. 
Right. It's the vent, and you're walking into the vent. Right. And you can't trust them. There are some stores I can tell when I'm coming to them. For instance, if the doors are open, there's uh, a shoemaker. I can always smell a shoe repair. Yeah. Because that's a, that comes from the store itself. You know, it's not a vent. But uh, some ways, I bet you can smell. Sometimes you can smell subways, but you may be smelling them from the grates in the street. Oh, right. Right? The right. heat comes up, the smells come up. You can't always tell the, the uh, stairs from the smell. Sometimes you, you can pass things. The other thing that is interesting, the difference between a cane and a dog, is that the dog is taught to keep you away from things. Right. The cane, you pick up everything. Right. So in some ways, the cane is more informative. Yeah. Much more informative with the dog. I mean, there, there can be, if you don't have a reason to stop in a certain place on the street, you can go buy something and never know what's there. Right. Because the dog will keep you away from it. So you have to just be even more vigilant. I think, he, I think uh, rather than talking about landmarks, um, I probably need to use my hearing much more. Uh-huh. Just my, my senses, my judgment. I don't know what you call it. Uh, those kinds of things. You know, getting a sense of spatial relationships, getting a sense of distances. Have I walked this block yet? Shouldn't I be coming to the end of it by now? Uh-huh. You know, um, and that kind of stuff. But in terms of actual landmarks, I'm trying to think of like anything that's really consistent other than the vent on that, that's vent on that store on that street. So it's really you know? a time, distance, time awareness. Yeah. You know this is how long it takes, you know how many streets you have to cross. Well, in the subways, for instance, you may say there are certain landmarks. I mean, I listen for turnstiles all the time. Uh-huh. Because they're always, nine times out of ten, they're active unless I'm traveling at midnight. Right. So if I'm looking for a certain entrance, or if I'm looking to get out of a subway that I haven't been in before, I listen for turnstiles. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen for stairs. People, you could hear people going up and down stairs. Mm-hmm. I have to be very careful. I don't ride escalators with my dog. I just never have. Yeah. And I have to be very careful because the new escalators are silent and you cannot hear them until you're almost on them. So I, I almost encountered that the other day. For some reason, I came up against something and I don't know why I put my hand out and it was the side of an escalator. <laughs> this is really about, I call it an oral history, but it's really just for me, I am just so fascinated by people who travel um, for you know their whole lives yeah. and uh, what experiences shape them, why do they think they do it as well as they do. So it's been great. It's been exactly what I, I just, was looking for. I just, but in talking to you, it's interesting because I don't feel like I have anything that I can really say. This is what happened, and this is how it, how I did it, and this is what. Unfortunately, just, just what. What I think, um, and, and thinking about it, I wish I were better at plan, not planning ahead, but being able to think things through. And unfortunately, it's been part of, on one hand, it's been good because it's made me like just, you know, move ahead. And on the other hand, it's not been helpful because maybe I've blundered through things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Every, you know, well, it's Margaret Galligan, who you don't, I don't know if you know, used to say, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, you know? You, you get adventuresome and you pay the price. But at the same time, some good things have come out of it. 
it's one of the things I think that's come out of it is it's been helped me to say, so what if you're going into something that's unknown? What's the worst thing that could happen? Right. You know, so you fall down the stairs. I mean, you don't want to fall down the stairs, but, or you get there and you flounder around or you have to figure out what to do. So it hasn't prohibited me from doing things. Right. And on the other hand, when I figure something out or make a plan in advance, I say, wow, this is great. I can breathe right. I don't have to worry about anything. I can't believe that this could be so easy. Well, this could be so uncomplicated. So um, both systems are okay. You know, I would say to someone, don't hesitate because you don't know where you're going. On the other hand, if you can figure it out, good. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. Well, you have that drive and determination. Yeah. In Joe's case, she grew up as an independent child. Her low vision allowed her to walk on time and as effectively as any child who grows up sighted and fully formed with motor abilities and a full, keen intellect. Yet she was aware as an adult of how unsafe she was as a child, crossing major avenues with incomplete knowledge of exactly where the cars were. She had incidents that clearly demonstrated the difference between orientation and mobility. She was oriented, no problem. But knowing where you are and where you're going and having a plan to get there, well, that's just half of the equation, right? It's orientation and mobility. So the other half is mobility. Mobility with blindness or a mobility visual impairment requires a mobility tool. And she lived for seven years, truly her whole life, without effective mobility tools. She survived. <laughs> Heckaroonies. But is that really the legacy we want for children who are blind? You live through hell. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger? No, I don't think so. Instead, let's recognize the value of mobility tools to all people who are blind or mobility visually impaired. Welcome them much like you already welcome wheelchairs. Another example of a mobility tool, but for a different disability. And some people are blind and need both. And we don't have a mobility tool for people in wheelchairs. Think about that. We don't have a mobility tool for older adults that is effective. We just have the one, the white cane, a rectangular cane, which is a clearly a great advancement, but we need more innovation, more options. We have the pediatric bell cane for toddlers, but what about toddlers in wheelchairs? We don't have anything for them, right? What about all the various contraptions for balance that we have for young children? Thousands of dollars of crocodile walkers all to address a, mo a motor impairment that affects balance, not having legs to walk. But children who also are blind, that's only one half of the equation. Yet again, the other half is I can't see where I'm going. I still need a mobility tool for my blindness a tool that gives me path information. And we need to fully understand that there's an equation there that we have an X that needs a solution. And that needs to be filled in with innovation. So Safe Toddles is just the first on the scene, truly, but we are hoping more people will get here and join us. You've been listening to the Safe Toddles podcast. To learn more about our mission to provide blind toddlers with a solution for walking independently with safety, we can be found through social media. Our website is safetoddles.org. We're on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Safe Toddles. 
And remember, if you can go where you want to, you should do so as independently and safely as possible. Thanks for listening, and please like, share, and let others know we're here. Come find us. This podcast was made available by generous donations from people like you. We can go if we want to, kind of young and so am I. And we can just feel deep from our hearts to our feet and surprise them with a victory cry.